Hello and welcome to the From Montana to Portugal podcast. Today, my heart is overflowing with joy. I am so excited for you all to listen into this incredibly insightful interview with my dear, dear friend of, I think, over 25 years, 20 years. Yeah, I can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> She's nodding. <laughs> um, so you're going to get to hear from KB Joseph today who I will just share with you is an incredibly talented human being. She has been drawing, sewing, dreaming, building, and arranging since childhood. Her curiosity about the world has taken her to various media and across many continents. A lot of that journey we're going to be talking about today. And as a third-generation artist, she has an innate love of the beautiful and a keen sense of craft. And as a fourth-generation international traveler, we're going to talk about that as well. She is an adventurous, ever curious about new people and places. She grew up, like me, in a rural community, only she grew up in the mountains of Oregon, which developed her commitment to place and community. Reflective by nature, Kaby's work is inspired by her experience of life and her maker. She is a commissioned sculptor for over 15 years and has been a professor of art at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And now she resides in New Zealand with her husband and two sons. So welcome, KB. I'm so, so happy you're here. Thank you for coming. Oh, I'm glad to be here and talk with you. Oh, it's so great. So I want to start, actually, I, I, I said I would share this. I want to start with your statement about your art because I feel like it's a great window into your world. So just this beginning statement, and for those of you who are listening in, you can find KB's statement at kbjoseph.com forward slash statement. And please do go there and read the whole thing. It's an excellent artist statement. I'm just going to read the first paragraph, which is, art is my way of being curious about the world, figuring things out and talking to others about it. I experience life as a constant tension between polarities reaching for the sacred but mired in the profane, loving this place and these people, but feeling an unrelenting homesickness for a place I've never been, beguiled by beauty, yet uncomfortably aware of impending tragedy, nurturing the intentional and reflective life while living in a world of immediate gratification and the practical. Thus, I often feel disoriented. My art flows from this disorientation and my rooted loves another polarity. Oh, so good, KB. I just love that. It reminds me of Dickens. It's the, uh, the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> Do you mind starting there and talking about the polarities that you're experiencing in life? Um, right now? Yeah. In New Zealand? Yeah. Yeah. I think the big um, one that my husband and I just confront daily is this question of feeling called to this place, but then feeling completely clueless about why we're here. <laughs> and it's just like, we feel like we're supposed to be here, but we can't understand why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing here. And that's like a big cloud to be living inside of. It's a taking each, well, Henry Nowen said, you don't have to know what's going to happen in the distant future. You only have to know how to take the next right step. And I think that's living in that moment of the next right step. Mm, I love that. Living in the moment of the next right step. So is that how you 
are dealing with it currently of just thinking about what's really in front of you and what is the next right step? Yes. Well, I, I would love to say, like, oh, I'm so perfectly present minded all the time. It usually kind of goes more like this. Big, like, Ugh, what am I doing? What do I do about this issue? Like, how is that going to be resolved? And then kind of stepping back and being like, you know, I can't know that. We're just going to trust, be prayerful, and just do the next thing. And then just going to have to trust how that comes out and just deal with actually I mean it's also just saying like I not only trust that I'm going to be where I'm supposed to be but that I'll have the capability to deal with whatever happens at that point and I have the adaptability to, to flex and respond to that situation appropriately but I also need to be gracious with myself and say I may also not deal with it appropriately and then have to co come back and repent of how I dealt with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's such a, a familiar place, I think, for people who travel abroad, especially. So when you're put into positions where you're, you're just unfamiliar with so much around you, it's hard to understand, am I doing the right thing? Do I know in my cultural background, can I draw from any experience? And fortunately, you have, I, I didn't mention this in the intro, but you have a degree in master's degree in intercultural studies, and you've lived and experienced a lot of the world. So let's, but let's just talk about why you're in New Zealand and how long you've been in New Zealand first. So you want to share a little bit about the story about how you arrived to New Zealand? Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to make it really brief, but the story started when I was pregnant with my 11 year old and my husband and I were approached to come to New Zealand and we were like, huh, I don't know. We've never even thought about that before. Um, and it, it became clear that, that what was offered to us wasn't the way we wanted to get here. If this is where we're supposed to go. And then we just didn't think about it again. And then my husband's an entrepreneur. And then through a business that he helped found some people from New Zealand reached out to them. And so then my husband started traveling to New Zealand um, a couple times a year. It probably totaled about two to two and a half months a year. And we were like, huh, this is interesting. And then while he was here, he was solicited like two or three times to come and, and take a position here. And he was like, and we were like, hmm, we thought about it, but uh, it never seemed like the right fit, so just put on the back burner. And then my husband won uh, through, because he had done so much work in New Zealand, he was selected to be an Edmund Hillary Fellow. And the easiest way to describe that fellowship is that some Americans said, if you have a problem with attracting Basically, a lot of the talent in New Zealand goes to Australia and abroad. They said, you know, you could attract a talent into your own country. <laughs> so basically, it was a, a work visa which that turns into a permanent residency visa that's for talent attraction, essentially, is what it is for, specifically in the field of entrepreneurship. So through that, my husband got permanent residency, but COVID hit during that whole process right after he became a fellow. So there was no chance for us to come. 
and so we just that was like a big cry <laughs> because we kind of felt like things were pushing us down. I'm like, okay, I am just tired of this door opening and being closed. Like it's definitely closed now. We're just not going at all. And so we just totally let go of it, which took some time, really invested where we were at through COVID. And then through a connection in New Zealand that they offered my husband position that was, well, they, they said, would you apply for this position? And my husband was like, oh, I'm not sure. And he said, just send me the job description. And he sent the job description and I, was, I just like laughed. I said, well, this was written for you. They didn't know that about him. It was just a, a, somebody sort of ancillary that told him to apply. And I just said, if you apply for this job, you are going to get it. And sure enough, he did. And we also got our permanent residency also came through at the same time. So we came here uh, last September 28th. Is, so September 28th of 2022 is when we landed. And we're in Havelock North, the Hawks Bay, New Zealand. So we're in the North Island. So as a woman of faith, looking back, how do you see that? Because there was this it was sort of a jerkiness of like, okay, we're going to go, then we're not going to go, then we're definitely going to go. Do you, do you look back and you see it all as right timing? Oh, yeah. I think, I think honestly what's happening in that scenario is that there's a lot of big asks in there. I mean, it's really far in New Zealand, and you really just don't realize how far away it is until you get on that plane here, and you're like, wow, this is – I've never been on a – I've never been this far from the United States before. <laughs> um, uh, and it's just so remote from everything. I mean, New Zealand, I mean, New Zealand is close-ish to Australia, but it's not close to anything else. It was, I think it was just yeah. preparing us, kind of getting it into our mind. I think it's also us kind of, it also is a, that through that time period is sort of a, also a coming awareness of like, if we did that, what should that look like? I, my husband, I feel like my husband's, my husband has two affections. I really believe in living by your affections. And one of his affections is like entrepreneurial. He just loves personally just building new things and helping other people build new things. The other affection is for God and ministry and serving people spiritually and I think there were a lot of things that I know there was a lot of things that happened in that time period that needed to happen to get us, I think, ready to be here. Um, so, yeah, I see that as really obvious. <laughs> and in fact, I have to rely on that sometimes because there's days when it's really hard to be here and I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> It sounds like you were being prepared for something, but in a way you can't, it's hard to recognize that you're being prepared for something when you feel like I am prepared. How much more prepared could I be? Like, right. God, I'm ready. Right. <laughs> but you've been there a year mm -hmm. and how are things going? Things are really hard right now. <laughs> so because I have a degree in intercultural studies, I know that um, 
So when you when you transition cultures, not for like a short trip, but you know, like for like a year or more, you're really like moving somewhere indefinitely, um, or for at least mm-hmm. two years, I would say. What happens is you go through, um, I call it a wave pattern, and you're at the bottom part of the wave when you're getting prepared you're getting ready to go and there's all this anticipation. And so it's like growing, growing, growing. And then you get there and you're like, Oh my gosh, everything's new and exciting and amazing. And you're always like checking things like, is this how I thought it would be? Oh, it's better or it's different, you know, and you go up, up, up. And then you get to the top of the wave and then you sort of hit a wall. usually happens around the two to three month mark. You hit a wall where you're like, Oh my gosh, we're really far away. And, it's kind of like the new fun excitingness wore off, if that makes sense. And you kind of start to encounter the things that you, you're starting to see where things are going to be hard or mm-hmm. tricky or you start to get homesick, things like that. And then you tend to fall and there's this falling pattern. And then you'll go, you'll, you'll kind of get through that set of challenges. Hopefully you get through that set of challenges and then you'll actually start to go up again. Now, some people don't make it through that first challenge, and actually, they just turn around and go back at that point. So, and then you'll go up again, and you go down again, and you just have this continuing wave yeah. pattern. And usually, the waves are really high with short intervals in the beginning, and then the wave sort of gets more. So, it's people like more choppy, right, at the beginning, or like higher, taller waves, and then the waves get more rolly the longer you are somewhere. We, so I would say that we're in a, like, yeah, all the newness of everything has worn off. And the other thing, it's not just the newness. I think you kind of have to be somewhere about nine months to start to really cut. Well, let me know if you live, if you went somewhere like China, where I've lived before, the culture so obviously different. You come right up against the cultural wall really quickly. But somewhere like New Zealand looks very familiar to an American and people speak the same language. And so the cultural difference is more nuanced and we've been here long enough and now we're getting it like we were involved in a construction Mm -hmm. project. My husband's like real, like things are some big decisions are being made at the church he leads. And so he's going through really complicated kind of conversations and things so we're really coming up against the cultural wall right now. And that's why it, it's, it's hard because you're just like, oh, my gosh, I, this is way different than I thought. And one thing that I would share with your listeners that is just such an essential tool in cross-cultural learning is whenever you come up against that, to just try to be curious you know, it's pretty easy to be judgmental and be like, ah, oh, people here are idiots or they have no idea, blah, blah, But, you know, mm. and to your way of knowing things, it might, that would maybe be idiocy in the United States. But obviously this is a culture where everything is working right. or working as well as it does in your culture, right? Every culture has things they do better. And so obviously there's a way of getting along here. So it's best to just sort of when you come up against that wall to be curious and say, okay. Mm-hmm. there's something more going on here. And I always hold that mm-hmm. question, like there's something more going on. Um, there's something that I can't see 
that is makes this system or this behavior work the way it does. And then I have to become curious about myself, like, why does that make me uncomfortable? Is that because from my culture, I have certain expectations about how something would happen. But this culture is a completely different set of expectations, so our expectations aren't meeting one another. So yeah, so it's very exhausting right now. So usually when you're like changing cultures, it can be very tiring, especially if you're in one that's very different where the language is very different. I think you feel really tired up front. But I think for us, it, we're feeling tired right now because we're coming up against the like, oh, so what that word means this here, like all the context around this word would mean this here, like mathematics for somebody in grammar school. I have this whole idea that like mathematics is very uh, objective, right? And so when I'm talking to the teacher about the mathematics curriculum, it took us a half an hour to figure out that our context was so completely different that we were just talking right past one another. Oh, you're kidding. And it's math, right? <laughs> yeah. So I just wouldn't think that about math. I would have thought that about some other subject. So that's why I'm saying like, uh, yeah, we come up against a lot of that. So is that an example of something you're having to be curious about right now? Or what do you feel like you're, you're being curious about at the moment? Um, the one thing I'm really curious about right now, one thing that surprised me about New Zealand was, I mean, New Zealanders are just very friendly when you meet them, but their culture is actually very reserved mm-hmm. and they're quite emotionally reserved, much more guarded, like not very, um, they haven't read all the Brene Brown books about yeah. vulnerability. So, <laughs> um, so for me, one of the things I'm really trying to get curious about is like, how do people build relationships and, and how do they build intimate relationships here? Cause I obviously believe that people have them. I'm just trying to understand what that means and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I would say that's the main thing culturally mm-hmm. that we're trying to understand is how relationships are built, maintained, how you establish trust, What's the interval for establishing a trust-building relationship? You know, uh, in some cultures, people are like, well, that's how I describe it. So Americans tend to form a quick bond, but it's not particularly strong. True. The opposite of that, or uh, in opposition, not opposition, uh, maybe a, a different thing would be like maybe if you were in Germany, the relationship is built more slowly, but it lasts the bond stronger. Mm-hmm. Or that would be the same thing for like Asia, right. you know. Um, so that's what I'm trying to. What's something I'm, I'm working on understanding here? Yeah, because you left a, a really incredible community. You had family there. You had friends there. You had a church there. You had an educational community. You had other artists. You had intentionally built that for years, and I. I know that must have been a challenge to not necessarily let go of because you still remain in relationship in some ways with all of those people, but to leave for another culture. Yeah, that was very hard to leave. In fact, I didn't want to leave that culture. The only reason, I mean, that culture, that community, the only reason we left that community is because we're people of faith and we felt 
like it just seemed obvious that we were supposed to do this. And so that's why we left. And that has been really hard. And um, a piece of advice that was given to us before we left was a man who we really respect said to Will and I, he said, you know, he said, don't look for us there because we're not there. And there's something new that you're supposed to have there. And you need to trust that God has new relationships for you that are wonderful as well, but they're just not the same relationships. And I do think that's a mistake that's easy to fall into is that we try to try to make other people in other places fit into the place we've been. You know, it's kind of like my limited imagination that my life can only look one way or I can only be filled in one way. You know, so it's sort of a growth question for oneself. Yeah. I've heard that a lot, actually, for advice for people moving to Portugal is to try not to recreate the life that you had Mm -hmm. in America in Portugal. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to have the same square footage of house and I'm going to have the same sort of, it's just that the weather's going to be better. (laughs) You think like everything's going to be the same, but there's this one thing that will be slightly better. You're setting yourself up for a massive amount of disappointment. Is what I've heard. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Uh, I, I guess I want to ask you that growth question. You've been through this wave a lot. You've lived in China for an extended period of time. You've been through massive amounts of Europe for a good chunks of time. You've lived um, and studied abroad. What makes it worth it? So, in a way, why do you keep doing it? If it, if we hit these, if we hit these troughs, and if we were able to, you know, live in our communities and have this sort of gentle, peaceful life, why would we ever leave and go through that wave? Well, I think that's a question that you have to answer for yourself in different ways at different periods of time. So, when I was younger, I think it was just curiosity you know, um, oh, what's that like, or, and, and I've always been curious ever since I was really, really little about people from other cultures, so I think when I was younger, it was just that curiosity, um, and then as I've gotten older, I mean, the time I spent in China, it was because I felt like it was just blatantly obvious that I was supposed to go do that, so, um, I feel like that was a calling, And I also feel that New Zealand's a calling thing. Although when Will, you know, we, we did always say like, we're not sure if we're supposed to live there, but we're obviously supposed to have some sort of connection to New Zealand because it's just like the doors being opened wide for us to go somewhere. That's not the easiest place to get permanent residency, unless you're a medical professional. (laughs) You can easily get it there. But, and I do think it's just, uh, I'm just interested in, other people from other places. I just think there's so much variety in the world and I've always been interested in that. I'm just a naturally curious person, but I don't, I'm not, I think it would be a mistake if I were like, oh, the grass is gonna be greener there. No, it's grass. It just might be a different type of grass and there's weeds in both places, you know? So, And I also didn't want to leave, I didn't want to come somewhere, 
I didn't want to come here because I felt like I was escaping somewhere else. I just don't feel like my heart's in the right place if I did it that way. So I do know that that is the case for some people, but I feel like I always want to leave, leave in tears because I, I built something or I had something that was worth enjoying, you know, before I left. But I think it's a great question. Like, why should we leave all of that? I don't know that everybody should. Actually, the world would be a disaster if everybody did that. <laughs> yeah, I think what I'm hearing is that your your faith has helped so much in all of this and providing that sense of meaning around the choices that there's mm-hmm. something bigger than yourself um, besides just the grass is greener or I might mm-hmm. feel better or I might be curious. Um, I, I might satisfy a curiosity. I also wonder if there is some sort of genetic predisposition to this, because <laughs> you might explain to your listeners, your father and your grandparents, and you know their experience with the world and living abroad, even though I don't think they have the same, or may not have had the same faith, a sense of calling that, that you have about it. No, but they went for work reasons, but... Uh, it is generational. I mean, my dad's lived moved to Europe when I was five, and he's lived overseas ever since. And my grandparents lived in Asia for like twenty eight years, and and they both my my dad moved to Europe for work, but then stayed, and then my grandparents went to Asia for work. But and my sister lives in Brazil. I do think I, it, it could be genetic. I do also think, though, it's part of, I'm from a, and my aunt and uncle lived in Tel Aviv for seven years and just moved back right before COVID. I'm from a very international family, and I think that makes it easier to imagine that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Whereas if you're from a particular area of the country and pretty much your family's been there for eight generations, it would seem mysterious to like, why would you want to go do that? Right. Um, And it would also maybe be hard to imagine it for yourself. Right. So I do think it's an imagine, it helps you to imagine that that's possible. I think also when you have people in your background that are from other, have lived in other cultures, you can also talk with and have some sympathy in the conversation because you might not have encountered the exact same situation, but you've encountered something similar. And so for me, when I go, like I was just back in the States this summer, um, getting, cause we only came with suitcases, shipping a few things. I can talk to my aunt and uncle who lived in Tel Aviv and talk to them about what I'm encountering. And I feel like I actually get some support Whereas if you're from a background where nobody, hardly anyone's, like no one's ever lived somewhere else and maybe occasionally a few people have traveled, people, you don't feel any sense of connection. It actually will just make you feel more distant, I think. It would make you feel more distant Mm -hmm. from people because you just can't relate there. So you're living in just a complete separate reality and there's, your connection points become less and less. So for me, I still have those connection points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I live in a place, obviously, that's agricultural based. So there's a lot of rootedness here, meaning people feel very connected to this place, feel very connected to the land. I think in general, Montana is like that, that there's a lot of uh, attachment to this particular ground, this particular scenery, which probably is the case for most places. But I 
I definitely feel it here. Even though there are a lot of travelers, there aren't a lot of people who may, you know, feel comfortable enough to, they would rather stay and be rooted. And I was listening to um, uh, another professor, I can't remember her name, but she was talking about how she thinks the United States has made this mistake of creating an American dream where we send people, we send young men and women out when they're 18 and say, go find your way in the world versus allowing them to be happy where they live. Um, so there, there's an idea that you're not successful if you can't go out and like be a, take a suitcase to New York and make your way versus being in a community and loving where you live and growing up there. So I've been thinking about that concept quite a bit since I heard that and wondering about. I like that, but I don't know that that's true forever in America. Certainly where we were living, that wasn't the case. But I do think that's the spirit. I do think that's the spirit in the air, like media, everything that's popularized is sort of that like Marlboro man, like taken like the future by the horns. <laughs> that's right. You know? Yeah. Um, but, but one thing that I really appreciated about where we lived in Chattanooga was that people really loved the place. And they might leave to go to college, but a lot of times, and you know, the early 20s, but a lot of times they'd come back. And also people would just stay there because they're like, this is a nice place to live. I want to be invested, you know? Or a lot of the college students that I had would just stay there. They're like, this is an amazing place, you know? And we, and I do think that we make better places when we have a love for a place, you know? It's like falling in love with the place that you're in. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's part of the thing, too, is like wherever you're at, you sort of need to fall in love with the place where you're in. So you and I both went to college in southeastern Michigan, and we came from like beautiful mountains, right, like the West. And I remember because I stayed on there to um, work on my portfolio for graduate school for two years. And I remember I kind of was like always at the university the college, but just sort of like the place was incidental to it. Does that make sense? Like this just happens to be in this area and I hate this area. And I remember really having a moment where I, I was like, you know what? I need to learn to love this place. I need to learn to love this landscape that's so different than me. I need to like find a way to have some affection for the type of people that are here in this community in some way. And I really did. It took you know, a year or two, but I feel like that prayer was really answered. And I think that was really good for me. It, it showed me that there's beauty everywhere and we just have to find it. And that each place was created uniquely and specifically for a reason mm, that adds value. Yeah, I, I 100% agree and was learning those same lessons about the same time that you are. I'm still learning those lessons for sure, here, especially when it's so white or so brown or so monochrome, it's, it's, it's just difficult to be in seven months of monochrome, essentially, in your life. <laughs> like, there's no color. Where is the color? And yet it is a gorgeous place. We have gorgeous mountains and, and blue skies and blue and green landscapes. I mean, it's gorgeous, uh, but it was 
different from Michigan. Michigan was quite different from it. And it did take a while for me to be mature enough to see that beauty. And recently, a, a, friend, of, a friend of ours sent me some photos of her trip to Michigan this summer. And I was like, oh my God, they were so beautiful. The sky was gorgeous, flowers were gorgeous. Mm. And it was a good um, awakening to that again, that the Midwest has its own beauty, that every place has its own beauty. And I guess one thing that I remember too about our experience is that you studied abroad for a year in the UK and I remember when you came back, it was mm -hmm. quite hard on you to re-enter into the U.S., I think in part because you fell in love with that place so much that it was like you were going through a mm. withdrawal of the love that you had or experienced while you were there. Would you say that's true? Yeah, that's. Um, I actually experienced that a lot. Um, that's called reverse culture shock. And mm. the idea is that you have a adapted so much to the place that you're in that your own culture is a shock to you. So you have to readapt to your own culture. And I had that experience coming back from Europe. And then oddly enough, I had that experience after only being gone for like a couple months in, in, in India. And then I had it again when I came back from China. So I have that. Uh, I don't know. I guess I just have that experience a lot. But that's a really common thing to have happen. And that's something when you do come back from another culture that you have to, if you're like, I'm back, I'm with my family, I'm with my friends, I'm in this place that I like love and I wanted to come back to, why am I feeling so down? And, and that's a totally common experience. I think part of the reason we have that experience is because we can't bring where we've been back to the people we're with. And so there's just this big disconnect. I think it's isolating and kind of lonely feeling, if that makes sense. Well, for me, it was anyway. Yeah. I think you're right that we, the gap in experience is so great that you don't know how to bridge that or have a conversation about it. And I think as your friend, when I saw that happening, I didn't know how to help you because, and I don't think I could have really, other than just to say, you know, I love you. Sorry that things are going so, that things feel so hard right now. Uh, but I remember that being a, a particularly hard time for you. And yet we've, over the years, we've also had conversations about how America doesn't fit us at times. So our own culture can often feel like it's not the best fit. Not, you know, we've already talked about, you're not fleeing from someplace. You're not looking for the grass being greener. You loved where you lived. But maybe talk about a little bit about how you experience your own culture when it doesn't feel like it's the right fit for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I always feel like I'm a salmon swimming upstream in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think part of the reason why some people do live abroad is because their own culture doesn't quite feel like it's the right fit. And it's not like you feel, oh, the home I've always been looking for is somewhere else. It's just that when you're somewhere else, neither you nor the people around you expect it to be a perfect fit for you. Hmm. And for that reason, it feels more comfortable, oddly oh. enough. Yeah. I guess in the United States, I think that it's never felt like a good fit for me. I mean, I, I just, I, I don't 
I don't want to say it's not a good fit for me. I just have always felt like a bit of an outsider or not fully American or something, um, which is odd because I'm actually very patriotic <laughs> from a military family. I really believe in the experiment that was America that, you know, that started with the Revolutionary War. But um, the, the thing for me is that I culture is extremely important to me like it's very life-giving to me and unless you're in a big city in the United States I don't think culture is woven into our ethos and the way it would be in Europe for example those are older cultures they have a lot of high culture there's just a more the general understanding of culture from of some cultural things, there's just higher appreciation in general. You know, kids are brought out to museums, they're brought to musical performances, things like that. I'm a very type B person, and I think America is very type A. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a little bit hard for me. One thing, and that's one thing about coming. So, one thing when you go to another culture is I think it helps you to understand yourself and your own home culture better. Mm-hmm. And so being in, so before when I was lived, was living in China, it's just so dramatically different. You can't make any comparisons in a way. You're mm-hmm. just, it's all, all contrast you see between it and your own culture. But being in New Zealand, because on the surface it feels similar, has really helped me to see some different things. Like America, I mean, I think I could have said it intellectually, but to emotionally feel it is something different. And I'm like, oh, yeah. We are super performance driven in the United States. Oh, yeah. And like, I could have told you that with my head, but like, I emotionally feel that difference here mm-hmm. because it just doesn't, there is, this isn't a performing culture mm-hmm. from what I can tell. That's just mm-hmm. not a value. Mm-hmm. And I actually feel a lot more comfortable here for that reason because mm-hmm. it's not that I don't care about doing things well. I do care about doing things well. It's that I don't, I'm not performance driven oh also the pace of life here people are much more like uh i think it's because it's an island i think because the maori part of the maori i think it's also because it's like the last it was the last inhabited large piece of land in the world so it's kind of the frontier in that way people are much more laid back and like non-rushy about things because i think they just realize they just don't I mean they're just this little island they just have to wait for things to get here and maybe they won't be here so there's not people are just like well we'll just have to be flexible about it we'll just have to make it work you know and and the United States is so there's a false sense of control <laughs> which makes it hard yeah yeah, I, I'm definitely coming up against that in the in the real estate process of there's these deadlines to meet and they're all arbitrary, basically. I mean, they're all deadlines that we've set up in the banking process or in a contra- in contractual process. But as an American, there's high anxiety to meet the deadline. There even is. Even though they're totally arbitrary <laughs> in the sense of like, really, I have to get my two burners fixed by September 10th at four o'clock PM, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and then the other thing too is like, and if I don't, there's a judgment about it, you know? And yeah. I'm just like, yeah. 
there was no electrician around. Like, <laughs> right. like, I've done the very best I can. Can we understand that? I don't have the right. skills to deal with this myself. So I'm wondering, actually, in some ways, if that is part of the curiosity that you're seeking in the relationship building piece, because I think a lot of times in the U.S., and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of times in the U.S., we also build relationships based on our judgment of other people's performances as well. Like, mm. oh, this is a person that I I can see doing well in the world or successful, um, or we choose our relationships that way. And I think what I'm hearing you say potentially is that New Zealanders do not, may not look at relationships that way in at all. I don't yeah. know. I, I don't know enough to say that yet. So yeah. I wouldn't want to make that statement. I would just say that like in day-to-day life, I, I just don't see that um, like people aren't particularly, I and mean, people look tidy, but people don't, particularly don't seem to be concerned about being now first of all I'm not in Auckland so it might be totally different in a big city like that but they don't seem to be particularly like worried about their personal presentation like you know I feel like America is actually quite fashion conscious I don't get that sense here I also don't get the sense like even being with the school system with the kids they tend to want to do things be they have kind of a more holistic outlook so, like, for example, like, organized sports for kids and high schoolers is organized more like intramurals would be organized in the United States. Like, it's fun. We'll get together one or two times a week to play. We're not going to let it, like, rule our lives. And we're not going to let our kids think, like, oh, you could be the next Michael Jordan. You know, like, we're just not going to be that way about it. Uh, and... Some reasons might be because <laughs> there's very little career opportunity in professional sports in New Zealand, but I think it actually has more to do with the fact that we're just so achievement-oriented in the United States, right? So it's like we have to achieve in every area, and I just don't see that here. I think people are like, that's good enough, which sometimes I wish they were a little bit more achievement-oriented in certain areas, of course. But I want something to be a little different. I'm like, ooh, couldn't you just want a little more there? <laughs> like in our home renovation, I'm like, couldn't you just want a little more? <laughs> like, but. We chatted. You said that one of your sons was having a harder time with this. Is more American in the sense that he wants to achieve. He wants to stand out. He wants to show his unique abilities, his independent nature. He wants to be approved of for that, which is a very common Americans are like, see me, see me in all my glory. Now give me the adoration I deserve. Well, he's also just very like competitive. And so he's like, he really feels self-worth through achievement. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny because he's the youngest and not, neither of my kids ever, the school system's not very good where we live. So neither of my kids ever um, actually went to school there. And yeah, he's very American. We just kind of laugh. He's very emotional, very loquacious, you know, and we're just like, wow, he's like really very American. And then our oldest son is very friendly, but very emotionally reserved. You don't know what's going on. And he's always been that way. It's not just his age. You don't know what's, we're like, is there an inner voice in there? (laughs) Um, But 
you know, he likes to likes to be part of the group and conform to what the group's doing. He's much more like egalitarian about everything. He's like totally, I'm like, wow, he's really a Kiwi. That's really, from what I can tell, Kiwi culture. Mm. And so school here has been fine for him. When at the teacher parent interview, they're like, oh, he's very confident. And I was like, that's interesting. I don't think he's particularly confident. I just think he acts like an American. You know, like he just carries himself like Americans do. Um, and, you know, the downside to Kiwi culture, and the Kiwis can mm-hmm. see this, but they kind of don't know what to do about it, is that yeah, it, they don't want to, the, the conformity here is such that if people don't want to be, there's kind of like a false humility about everything, like, oh, I don't want to. I can't show that I'm good at something. I kind of have to pretend I'm not. And there's also a push pushing down of people who are very excellent at things. Like they, they can't, I was just talking to a group of Kiwis the other day about this. They're like, Mm -hmm. it's terrible. That's like, if somebody's like a really good piano player, it should be fine for us to say, you're a really good piano player. Like, that's amazing. That's a real gift to us. But instead we just all have to act like, well, it's fine. And so they suffer from a problem here that they call the tall poppy syndrome for that reason, that those, that those people are not receiving the opportunities for advancement or sometimes they become depressed because, you know, you work really hard at something and then nobody, I mean, they appreciate it, but they don't apparently appreciate it more than anybody else that it can be a problem. And that might be part of the reason. Well, I think wages are part of the reason, but that might also be part of the reason why a lot of the achievers in New Zealand find themselves mm-hmm. somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they feel recognized or like who they are in those places versus an outsider potentially or someone. Who, yeah. Right. Very mm-hmm. interesting. Can you talk about how the natural environment has influenced you since you've been there? So New Zealand is known as a very beautiful country. Um, how has being near or in on this island and uh, near the natural places uh, affected you? Uh, I think it's just the proximity to everything that's really nice in New Zealand. So we're like 20 minutes from the beach at the base of a mountain. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's affected me any differently than it did in the United States because I lived approximate to a lot of natural beauty there. I will say this has been an, I have observed this. So there's tons of land in New Zealand, but land is very, very expensive. And Mm. everybody who lives in town is living on a postage stamp lot. And I'm like, that's weird for people Mm. who love nature. You'd think they'd want a little bit more like, trees and nature around them but I think it's the housing market that's pushed everything in that direction where people like have a bigger lot and they subdivide it to stick a house on it It, it's nice to be well where I lived before was like this too but um it's nice to be in a place where people like to be outdoors and if you tell people you're hiking everyone oh they'll give you ideas and so I think there's a lot more um community around that sort of thing Whereas perhaps in the United States, you might have to find the people who were also interested in that, where it wasn't just kind of part of life to be outside and do things. I will say it's been very 
when we, especially when we've gone, it, it is inspiring to live in a place that's very beautiful, right? So you just go to the beach and you're like, oh my gosh, the beach is so beautiful. Or like, this is a beautiful view from here. So I love that. But you and I have both been spoiled in that way where we both grew up somewhere like really beautiful and you live somewhere really beautiful and I just left somewhere beautiful. So, <laughs> Yeah. In fact, a mutual friend of ours used to call us snobs because we were kind of, I was at least dismissive in college of like we talked about Michigan's beauty of sort of, oh, it's a little bit beneath me or you haven't seen beauty yet. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but I also, I am very appreciative of it. I do think it, having had it, you know when it's gone, right? You can feel the loss mm. of aesthetic beauty. You have a sense of longing for it when it's not in your life, of longing for wild places, of longing for green places, of longing for um, expansive views. There are things that I think, places that I'll always hold in my heart for those reasons. And mm -hmm. it makes me sad in a way that, over my lifetime, those things have become a lot more inaccessible for the average person to experience because it's so much more expensive to visit those places than it used to be. Um, and I will keep seeking beautiful places out in my life. And I'm, I can't wait to visit you and see that. In yeah. New Zealand's, see New, New Zealand's beauty. One thing that you've always, we've talked a lot about um, over the years is our relationship to time. And mm. you're a very present, I think, a very present focused person. <laughs> I was excited you showed up on time. Now, I, I would, wasn't expecting anything less, but <laughs> for those of you who don't know KB, she can get completely laser focused on a project or a person or a conversation and completely lose track of time, which I think is an incredible gift um, and not something that... But not if you're the one waiting. Right. <laughs> also not if you're in an American culture that is very time-oriented and is constantly talking about productivity and how we use our time. And now with smartphones, is so much more distracted and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm curious if you wanted to chat, chat about how things are for you in time now in a different culture. Yeah. Yeah. I actually love that about New Zealand is, um, so most people, first of all, I should say that New Zealand is very ethnically diverse, which surprised me. There's a lot of people from a lot of different places here, but there is this predominant culture that the white people that came from Europe and most of them came from England that are here. So there is a sense in which, like, things really start on time, mm. but people don't seem put out if you're not on time, which is probably about right for me. Yeah. Like, we've done our best, but sometimes things just happen and we're just, like, late, you know? So um, I <laughs> – my friend Mary, her husband bought her this uh, – like little picture and it had a picture of like Marie Antoinette on it. And it was like, it said, don't rush me <laughs> on it. And that's me. I just can't stand being rushed. And this is not a rushy culture. 
I think because again, it's maybe not that huge emphasis on productivity. Maybe people, maybe people, I don't know. Again, I haven't been here long enough. Maybe people aren't trying so hard to pack so many things in, but I also just think they have a just more relaxed sense of time. And so that's been great for me. You know, every culture has a different sense of time and that's, you wouldn't think that going into a culture with a different sense of time might bother you or disorient you. But I find that that's what I've traveled, especially with groups of people. That's probably one of the first things that people come up against that it really bothers them. I just don't know that they realize what's going on. So for example, if you go to India, if somebody says noon, they might not be there till one and they're not technically late. That will drive an American insane. Totally. Right? We think it's rude. Why didn't you let us know? Or like South America might be that way as well. And there's a difference in time where it's called monochronic and polychronic. And monochronic time, your orientation to time is oriented on a clock, something external from you, right? Like it's a, a measurement device. In polychronic time, your time is measured by the event. So when one event ends, you move on to the next event, which I have a polychronic time clock, but I've always been stuck in a monochronic culture. So whenever I go to a polychronic culture, I feel fine. All the other Americans are like going crazy. And I'm like, well, I'm not really worried. I mean, I don't want to be an hour late to catch my plane, but like outside of that, you know, I'm like, yeah, it just happened when it happens. I'm pretty good at keeping myself entertained. I'll get my book out, you know, or whatever. <laughs> but um, that's really, and that's, um, there's a book about cultural conceptions of time that is just so good. It has a really, it's really shaped how, it just really helps me when I go to other cultures. It's called The Dance of Life, and it's by Edward T. Hall. And time isn't just about, you know, being on time for things. Our sense of time is about, like, for example, like a building project that we're working on. As an American, I'm like, we were gone for a month so that you could get this done and you don't have it done. Like, what is up? But here they're just like, well, it just gets done when it gets done. It just gets done when the things get here. Like, it's an event. It's not a date on the calendar. And that can affect the built world, too. There's a lot of times when people will go into, especially, like, cultures that are, like, kind of tribal. They feel like they don't have a lot of future planning. That often has a lot to do with a culture's sense of time. Because Americans feel that time is quantifiable. And if time is quantifiable, then you would quantify how you use your time into the future. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a quantifiable sense of time, you don't really future plan in the same way. Yeah, and of course we think we're right, too. We're like, clearly it's quantifiable. Clearly it's measurable. Clearly it has outputs. Clearly we can make it productive or we can make something out of it. So let's do that versus allowing time. Well, I think those things are all true because you can do that, yeah. but you can also not do that. Yeah, <laughs> you can <laughs> right? like, not. Like they're just different. They're just different systems. Yeah. Um, and it's not a one's better than other. Now, one might be better than other for certain things. Like, mm -hmm. are you 
building a gigantic building, mm-hmm. it might actually be better to have some sort of future planning, quantifiable sense of time frame yeah. than be all flexy and open the whole time, right? So it's just kind of, but you have to understand, like my sister in Brazil, they were building a building in Brazil. She just had to let go of the reins and say, well, it just has to happen the way things happen here. So if it takes a year rather than six months, I, I'm not going to make everyone conform to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, Don't you think it's interesting because even in the U.S., we still run up against frustrations with time. So there's a saying that renovations usually take twice as long and cost twice as much as we expect. Maybe it's perhaps that we have these expectations all the time that everything's going to go exactly as how we've planned it out and that we can can control it all and we can control all the people involved and therefore it should just happen the way that we expect it. Yeah, no, that's true. So America, there's some different, um, it's called the Hofstede tools. Um, There's like seven different measures of cultures and one is called locus of control And locus of control is your perception of how much control you have and sometimes how much control you do have. America is a very organized culture. And so we actually can plan something and often it can be executed. We might have an unreasonable time frame, but it can be executed. So we have a high locus of control. So we just think we can control the scenario and therefore solve all the problems, right? And other cultures have a really low locus of control. So especially cultures that are in the developing world, you know, they're low, they don't have a lot of resources. It's hard to develop expectations when you don't have a lot of resources. You'll kind of be like, well, it's, I'll never forget this in China. I walk into the building I'm living in and there's an elevator goes to the fifth floor, which I live on. Um, and there's, and there's a set of steps and I usually took steps, but when I had groceries, I didn't want to carry them all the way up. And one day the elevator was broken. I remember standing at the concierge's desk, watching how all the different people responded to it. And the Americans would come in and they would be like, the elevator's not working. Say to the desk attendant, why isn't the elevator working? I don't know. When will it be working? I'm not sure. Has somebody been called to fix it? I don't know. And they're just kind of getting frustrated, like, how could you not have done all those things? And then they would, like, huff up the stairs. A Chinese person would come in. They'd just poke at the elevator, and they'd be like, is the elevator working? And the attendant would say no, and they'd go, hmm, just walk up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Low locus of control. <laughs> Low locus of control and a knowledge that they probably are not helping their health by being stressed out about something that they cannot control versus Americans well, being like, they just control this. Yeah, yeah. They just learned that they don't really have a lot of power. Yeah. And so they're just like, why would I spend my energy in that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where is so I think it's an interesting question to ask yourself. Like if yeah. I were going to Portugal, I mm-hmm. would get on the Hofstede's cultural analysis Mm -hmm. website and I would look at those they have this seven I think it's seven metrics and you can have it compare between Portugal and the United States and you can see the differences like how much more communal or individualistic you know the locus of control like time orientation all that stuff 
Yeah, you sent it to me a little bit before this podcast, and so I was playing around with it a bit, and I'm going to send it off to some Portuguese friends as well to get their take on it too. I'm excited to play with it, and I am going to link it in the show notes for other people, including the first book that you mentioned. And then you had one other resource that you sent me in advance. Crossing The Art of Crossing Cultures. Um, yes, if you read one book before you went to a culture, and it's like a workbook, so it has reading and it has activities yeah. to do, that would be the one book I would tell you to, to look at. And it covers those seven dimensions, but it helps it make a lot more sense to you because it gives you um, examples of scenarios. Mm -hmm. And there's like how you, and then you're like, this is how I would respond. And then they'll show you like how people in the culture would respond. And then they'll talk to you about why those people would respond that way. So I think it's really, it's, that book is very helpful and it will help, it helps me to not, to suspend my judgment. And that's what I try to do in cross-cultural situations. I mean, I should probably do it in every situation, but it's obvious to me that I should do it in a cross-cultural situation, like suspend my judgment, become, be aware that something else might be going on. And then just try to be curious about that and be okay with the fact that I might not get an answer right now. That's a really, really good point. And I, I hope that happens with your renovations. I know that you're going through <laughs> some tough times with the renovations. It'll happen. Right now. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. Hey, man, it's great. I was like laughing to myself. I thought, oh, yes, this is a totally cross-cultural scenario dealing like it feels cross-cultural in America to deal with builders. Like, why would I not expect that to be the case here? Oh, I'm so glad you said that. That makes it feel a lot easier to think about my experiences with builders in America as a cross-cultural experience. <laughs> um, well, I have so enjoyed every single minute of this. Um, I, I, I value your time, and but this has been incredibly enjoyable. I hope I get the pleasure of having you come back. And of course, we're going to keep um, enjoying the conversation. Before we go, would you mind just sharing with listeners where they can find out more about your art and and you, if I don't know if any of your art is actually available right now, but um, I would love to have listeners who are interested take a peek if they wanted to. Yeah, it's um, kbkaybjoseph.com. And I will say, we just rebuilt my website, so it might not be as fluid as I would like it to be, but you can certainly get in touch with me Yeah, there if you would like. And I do have work for sale. Good. Most notably, all those um, needle paintings are for sale. The needle paintings are gorgeous. Um, and KB just came back from the U.S. where she did a show in uh, Indianapolis. And... Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, go and check that out. I'll put it in the show links as well. And um, I'll, I'll end the recording, but stick around. And thanks everybody for listening. I appreciate your support. Uh, this has been super fun. Thank you so much again for listening to the From Montana to Portugal podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider coming over and subscribing on Substack to my work. It's janelleholden.substack.com and you can choose either a free or a paid subscription. And I'm just going to put in a plug here for supporting whether it's me or other writers on Substack, supporting your favorite creative. It will make their day and you will feel great doing it because... 
especially for those of us who are on Substack, we are committed to making our Substacks available without ads. So you're not going to see affiliate links and sponsorships and ads and that sort of thing on there. We really are a subscription-based community. And it's very helpful when, even if it's just $5, it goes towards helping us create more artwork and more writing. So if you do that, you have my forever gratitude. And if not, no worries. I'm glad to have you as a subscriber. I do publish essays on usually on Sundays and Mondays, and the podcasts typically come out midweek. So I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you again. And I so appreciate your support.